Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. The message is entitled, The Church or the Christian Walk in Unity. Paul the Apostle moves on to the practical section now of the epistle, dealing with the conduct of the believer in practice. In view of all the spiritual wealth that God has bestowed upon him, the wealth of the believer by the love of God in chapter 1 through 3. The walk of the believer in the love of God is chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6, 9. And the welfare or the warfare of the believer through the love of God is Ephesians six ten through 32. The order of Paul's letter is always doctrinal first, then practical. He begins by telling us what God has done for us. So then we can see our human responsibility to obey God in response to God. That's always the order. The first three chapters are doctrinal, our heavenly position in Christ, one through three. The last three chapters are practical, our earthly practice and obedience in Christ, four through six. This in no way implies that there is no doctrine taught in chapters three, four, or four, five, and six. There is, but it's just a practical way to divide the epistle. Now, the Christian life should never be thought of as only doing, but rather being. Jesus said to his disciples that he took them up to a high mountain and he taught them the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. The reason we can be is because what he's made us and what he's enabled us to do. So we never want to give any idea to anybody that we are working for our salvation. We're not, because sometimes we're accused of that because we believe that people can walk away from God. But that's not what we're talking about. God respects your choice and mind to obey or disobey. And if you had a free will when you were not saved, do you think that will is removed once you're saved? Of course not. So we have the unity of the believer in the body of the church in chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. Our walk is to be in the unity of the Spirit from verse 1 through 6. Our walk is to be according to the gifts of grace in verse 7 through 11. And the walk of the believer is to be with growth, development, and maturity to edify the body in love in verses 12 through 16. It all speaks about the unity of the, of the body. Now, the new life, in contrast to the old life, then begins in verse 17 of chapter 4 down to 32. The, our walk is to be as the new man in verses 17 to 24. And our walk is to be reckoning the old man dead in verses 25 through 32. So the practical outworking of all that God has given to us. So let's look at the call of the believer to unity that consists in three things. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The call of the believer to unity consists of the three following things. First, 
The practice of being one with our new birth. Verse 1. Secondly, the process of yielding to our new nature. In verse 2. And thirdly, the product of striving to live in the Spirit. Practice, process, product. One follows the other. First comes the practice of being one with our new birth. Notice the apostle here in verse 1. Once again identifies himself as the age-old warrior of Jesus. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Paul presented himself as one who lived out what he was about to require the Ephesians. That's why he's in jail. <laughs> so it's always a good thing for us to require of others what first we have lived out or are living out. Very important. He placed the personal pronoun I to be emphatic in the Greek at the beginning. This was not a demand to usurp some superior authority over them, but rather to appeal to them on the basis of love and concern for them. This is because he had been their pastor for about three years. He was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus because he had lived out his faith. Remember, he had been accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple. And therefore, he was suffering for his faith, having preached Christ to the Jew as well as the Gentile. Paul was um, making his transition from the doctrinal to the practical, as we mentioned, about the Christian life. The word, therefore, is a concluding word. We have mentioned this every time we come across it. It can be translated according or then, consequently, or these things being so, or in view of the facts. The reference is to the spiritual wealth of the believer in Christ in the heavenlies of the first three chapters, but particularly chapter 1, verse 3, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies, which kind of summarizes the whole three chapters. The measure of the endowment is every blessing, all that is needed. Nothing is lacking when salvation is imparted to the believer. God does not impart different qualities of salvation to different people. Some of the incredible blessings are listed right away in the opening chapter. Chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, riches of his grace, wisdom, and one day gathered to Christ, an inheritance, so on and so forth. All of that has been increased to us by the grace of God, being born again by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. So you have those enumeration of lists in chapter 1, verse 4 down to 14. And then there's many after that. Now, notice the Apostle Paul, now based on the wealth of the believer in Christ, admonishes them that they are what they are to do. So verse 1 speaks about what we are to do. To live a life that reflects their spiritual wealth. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The personal words of Paul are an admonition to what we are to do. He's addressing the Ephesians. The word beseech can be translated in different ways depending on the context. It can be translated to beg or entreat, imploring someone. 
The context in our text has more the idea of admonishment. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I beg you by the mercy of God that you present your body a living sacrifice, holding itself to God, which is your reasonable service, after an entire um, um, proclamation of the grace of God, the gospel, the power, chapter 1 of Romans. The conclusion is that's the least we can do, having all, all that he's done for us, is to present our body. It's a great exhortation to what to response to what God has done. The word here is a compound word, um, Para, alongside, and the word kaleo, to call. Paul is coming alongside to admonish the Ephesians regarding the spiritual life. Like you're out there running and you're almost giving up and someone comes along and says, Come on, you can do it, go. You, you, you admonish them. You've trained hard. You spend a lot of time. And so, just because we know something doesn't mean we'll always do it. Just because we've learned something doesn't mean that we will be a doer of it. And the Holy Spirit is certainly there to convict us and to encourage us and to reprove us. But we also have each other to encourage and to admonish one another. We do that as parents to our children. We're to do it to one another as believers in Christ. The admonishment is to walk worthy of the calling they were called to. The word walk, peripatel, means to order one's behavior. The tense is the error is active, meaning constantly. The Christian walk is not just something you do when you want or when it's easy or for a year or two. It's, it's, it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime commitment. The request is based on the divine endowment and enablement. The response is based on the human responsibility. The divine and the human is no contradiction, but rather a complement of the same truth that's taught throughout Scripture. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's both God that does and wills of his good pleasure in you. Philippians tells us. And you have this seeming contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. It's a complement throughout Scripture. The idea of walking communicates several things. Walking implies progress. Nobody, you walk outside and you don't see people walking backwards. They walk forward. Now, they may walk backwards to exercise and build up their calves, but... Um, they're not going to get very hard and far and they may bump into something or trip even because it's not natural. Walking implies stability and balance. You know, when someone's drunk, you know they're drunk because they're all over the place. Whether they're walking or driving, right? When you're walking and you're, you're, you're balanced, you, you walk a straight line. Walking implies direction. Walking implies not only externally here, but internally. That the outside matches the inside. Very, very important. Walking implies not by natural ability, but by the Holy Spirit. This whole text. The manner of this walk is to be worthy of the calling they had been called to live. In other words, it is a high privilege, ladies and gentlemen, for us to be Christians. It is a high privilege that God has forgiven us and he has made us new. It's a high privilege that we are able to understand the word of God. It's a high privilege that we are able to fellowship with God. It is a high privilege that we are able to fellowship with each other. That I have the privilege to teach you, to fellowship with you, to talk with you, to sit in the cafeteria and drink coffee, laugh or whatever. 
high privilege. Something that God has put together that none of us could have done. The word worthy means in a manner equal in balance. That's the idea or in proportion to their calling. So there's no discrepancy between the two. Colossians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.12 uses the same word there. Now, the word calling refers to the divine summon into salvation. Their heavenly calling by divine initiation. So in other words, it is God who called us and we responded. He's always the initiator. And the word called refers to what each believer is called to do. In other words, the calling to salvation and the thing you're called to, only God knows that and you are to seek him for that. We have the whole aspect of the body, the hands, the arms, the different parts, and only you can know what part you hold in the body and what your gifts are. And then you're to align yourself and do your part so that the whole body is built up and edified. And it shouldn't be that the pastor or the elders tell you what to do. You're not the servants of the pastor or the elders. You're a servant of the Lord. So if you're the servant of the Lord, then you should go to the Lord to find out what he wants you as his servant to do. And so the responsibility goes back on you. And that's the way God has always done it. And he's never sent out any new notice about a new method or anything else. Though people here on earth try to change it, and they do, they mess it up, and they misrepresent God, and they mess up people's lives, and they mess up the the image and the uh, picture that God has for the world to see through the church. And they give more ammunition and fuel for people to mock God and to mock Christians and to blame God and to accuse Christians and God about many different things because we don't do things scripturally. As it is, they're not going to accept Christianity because they're dark and blind and dead, just like you and I were. They live in darkness. We did too. We were blind. We thought some people were nice, but they're kind of crazy. You know, they're Jesus freaks, you know. And we couldn't understand it. Now we're on the other side. (laughs) They can't understand us. And so the word call refers to what a believer is called to do. We're to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, but as we're being conformed to his and fashioned to his image, we are also being used within the body so that the body corporately is an example of Christ, his bride. The age-old warrior, a prisoner, but a servant who desired only to keep even uh, help even from Rome's cell there, admonishing them to do what um, he first had uh, lived out himself. And so knowing who he is, who talks to you, who they are, you, you value those words and you respect those words and you take those words as valuable for your life if the person has character, if the person is one of reputation, if the person is one who lives out what they teach. But if it's just the opposite, when they give you advice, well, who are you to give me advice? You know, all these shrinks, all these psychologists, they try to fix everybody else's life and their lives are all messed up. It's amazing to me, you know. And yet today, the world doesn't care if you're professional. They, they, they call you professional, but they just don't care if you're moral, ethical. It doesn't matter. What's the point, they say? 
But there was a time when being a professional in any arena, whether it be a teacher, a fireman, a policeman, you had to be moral and ethical or you did not get that job or you were released from that job. Today, you can get fired if you had to, anywhere or anything. Because the standard been so lowered, you can't go any lower. The heart of every father and mother is to exhort their children to live out their faith before their friends, to draw them to Jesus, rather than um, rejecting Jesus because of their hypocrisy. It's always the dilemma. It's always the problem. The reason the believer is expected, commanded, and exhorted to walk according to their calling and salvation is because they have a been enabled to do. It's just that simple. You as a parent never asked your son or daughter to do anything that you knew they weren't able to do. You're the adult. You measure the task by their ability. Because you want them to learn and grow and be stretched. But you don't ask them to do something that is so overwhelming for them that they just totally get defeated or even hurt. Or even broken. Now if we who are evil. Have that good sense. How much more God. We were once dead and trespassed in sins. But Jesus made us alive. And made us to sit in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. In chapter 2 verse 1, 5 and 6. He enabled us. We were sons and daughters of disobedience, living out our sinful desires and passions. Children of wrath by nature, but now we're sons and daughters of God by adoption. Ephesians 1, 5, 2, 2 through 5. Romans 8, 15. Galatians 4, 5. Adoption. You know what's neat about adoption is you get to choose the child you want. When you have a natural son or daughter, you go to the hospital... You can't look and say, I don't want them. I'll see you. You keep them. You got to take them home. You got to take home what you got. But when you adopt, you choose the one. Now, I, I don't know why God chose me, but I'm glad he did. It's a high privilege, right? The reason the believer walks according to their call and salvation is due to their understanding of personal human responsibility. By studying and examining what is taught to be true in the scriptures to grow, develop, and mature, as chapter 4, verse 11 through 16 will tell us later on. You, you have this awesome sense of, 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 of responsibility that you just can't sit, that you just can't remain the same. That in view of all that God's done for you, you have to respond to this. You have to live up to this. By presenting a body a living sacrifice, the temple of God, to prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 said. By confessing our sins when we fall short, maintaining our fellowship with him as... 1 John 2, 1 and 2 tells us, My little children, I write these things to you that you do not practice sin, but when you stumble and fall, Jesus Christ is righteous, an advocate for the defense, a lawyer for your defense. 
Because Psalm 66, 18 says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, God does not hear me. Sin drops the call between me and God. Until I get right. Sin is an obstruction. It's a hindrance. An obstacle. Between God and I. Just as much as some offense, some rebellion, some disobedience of our children to us. It's an obstacle until it is confessed and dealt with and removed. No different. The practice of being one with their new birth is the first basis of the believer's unity in the spirit. There's unity because we live out what we're learning what we're being taught. That's a great unity. Secondly comes the process of yielding to our new nature. Verse 2. Notice the Apostle Paul was not satisfied with a believer merely living out their Christian life. But was very concerned how they lived it out. So verse 1 is what they're to do. Verse 2 is how they are to do it. With all, long, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Paul declared three virtues that are to be present and affect a life that is worthy of our calling of salvation. All three, notice, are introduced by the word with. The Greek word meta. Lowliness, gentleness, and long-suffering. Dealing with our character. Two are accompanied with the word all. Lowliness and gentleness. Dealing with our attitude. Notice Paul declared that these three virtues, lowliness, gentleness, and long-suffering, are the virtues that bring about bearing with one another in love. So bearing in one another in love is really the first goal or the first climax. It's not another virtue. It's the product of the first three. Okay? The three virtues are the source or essentials for the ultimate goal, bearing with one another in love. The bearing with one another is the climax of the process with all lowliness, gentleness, and long-suffering. Notice the apostle, Paul here, is being directed by the Holy Spirit about the work of the Spirit in the believer. This is the context. He has mentioned the Spirit in chapter 1, verse 18, 218, 222, 37, 316, 44. One more time after this one. And many others after that. Now, the first word deals with the posture of our heart. The word lowliness. It means having a humble opinion about oneself. This is our problem. <laughs> We are full of pride as men and women. Welcome to the human race. 
This comes from a proper vertical perspective about self before God by the Holy Spirit. This comes from recognition of our inability to please God. Only Christians can understand this. This comes from our awareness that we owe our existence to God. That should humble us. That should make us think soberly and properly about ourselves. Now this vertical perspective will be the result of having a proper and healthy sense about ourself among and before others by the Holy Spirit also. But the key is first the vertical, right? If I can get that focus, then the horizontal should work out. Because it's an extension of the vertical, not the reverse. The idea being of having the sense of one's own littleness and unimportance, not exalting oneself above others. It's the most natural thing to do. The pecking order. Just go to school. First grade, second grade. Just stand out in the yard and watch them. It happens automatically. When you were a kid, you remember in school. You got to prove yourself. You got to set your mark. Otherwise, you'll be at the bottom. It's the way it is. That's the flesh. Modest humility would be a good word. An admirable Christian virtue in contrast to pride. The word all means all possible, not the sum total. And it's all what's possible towards God and man. So we're to do all that we can within these virtues that, they, that we yield to them so they can work in us and through us. Humility was not considered a virtue by the Greeks, but was despised. Labor was despised. That was for servants. The Greeks learned and they felt you had to assert yourself. Arrogant pride was exalted. Today, that's what we see in our culture. There's no humility. There's no um, modesty. There's no prudence, no discretion, no um, respectability. The... The more brash, the more ruder and cruder you are, the more you're exalted. Amazing. So much so that even some of the lowest forms of human beings have been invited to the White House by President Obama. Drug addicts. Different things. Amazing. That's how low our nation has reached an amoral society. No respectability. Everything is degraded. No worthiness, no balance of, um, of the standard any longer. Paul considered himself as a chief of sinners and least 
of the apostles and saints. 1 Timothy 1.15 and Ephesians 3.8. Now you know Paul. Paul was um, quite a student. He's a scholar. Around the Pharisees, he danced circles around them. No one could even compare to him. Zealous to the point of persecuting Christians. And yet when Jesus encountered him on the road to Damascus, he was brought to his end. He was humbled. Not humiliated. Humbled, there's a difference. When you're humiliated, you're insulted, you're degraded. The attempt is to make you angry and worthless and even in attempt to retaliate. Humbling somebody is bringing them to the right perspective of who they are. So they can be a better person. And they can understand that they are as rotten and have as much evil potential as anyone else. The human race. Perspective. Paul always had his master and Lord Jesus in mind. The epitome of example. Always. He mentions them over and over and over again. Jesus is the source. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all you that are labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's humble. He being God, the epitome of perfection, epitome of everything you can think of, did not exalt himself above us sinners, but became sin for us sinners. Wow. Now we can understand it cognitively and in, in, in that, but I don't think we understand it completely and we never will till we're there. Because we are still tainted with sin in our ability to understand such things are way beyond us. But we do understand them in part, and that part is sufficient to cause us to yield to him and to love him and respond to him. The second word also deals with uh, the posture of heart. The word gentleness means mildness or meekness. The idea of meekness does not indicate weakness. Never. The word is used of an animal that has been domesticated to submission, communicating the idea of power under control. Take a beautiful horse, just massive and just so powerful. And he's broken and he's trained. And you get a rider on him and he just moves him around and makes him walk forward, backward, sideways and kind of prance and dance. Power under control. It doesn't mean he's weak. 
The word also deals with our attitude. But whereas humility deals with our perspective before God and man, gentleness deals with personal care and dealings with people. Gentleness. Gentleness is an unresisting, uncomplaining disposition of mind. Now, as I'm saying all this, you know that you and I don't have it. <laughs> and nice to think we do, but we don't have it in and of ourselves. Oh, we can do some things and we can be respectful and we've been domesticated and educated and, you know, learned the ropes to an extent, but, but not to the extent that Paul is talking about. Moses was... Um, meek and gentle above all men. In Numbers 12, 3, remember that Aaron and Miriam spoke against him and the initiation, the provocation was by Miriam because he had married an Ethiopian woman. And, and rather to retaliate when God struck Miriam with leprosy, Moses interceded for her. Meek. He had the power to just, Lord, kill her. He didn't. David eulogized Saul in Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 17 through 22. Saul was his enemy. Saul tried to kill him. Yet when he heard about the death of Saul and Jonathan, he eulogized both of them. Mighty men. Heroes of Israel. Wow. The third word, long-suffering, deals with the um, perseverance of our mind now. It means patient endurance or steadfastness without retaliation towards people. Distinct from patience, the word hupomone, that means endurance with situation and circumstances. This word Macrosumia has to deal with being long-winded, literally long-nosed towards people. It deals with people. <laughs> okay? The word is used of God in Romans 2, 14, 9, 22, and 1 Timothy 1, 16, 2 Peter 3, 15. And the word is used of man in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, Galatians 5, 22, and other passages. So it's used for both man and God, where they are long-winded, long-suffering, long-nosed to bear with individuals. And when it's regarding God, he bears long, wanting not to judge, wanting not to pour out his wrath. And he's looking for repentance, he's looking for confession, He's looking for a turning from the wrong or the evil. Now, this is a man or woman who receives injury and provocation and doesn't strike back, having the ability and power to do so. Maybe you've seen uh, somebody walking their dog in the park or down the street, big massive Rottweiler or a bigger dog, 
them or whatever. And, and then you see this little yappy dog come by and he's just yapping at that big dog. And that big dog just looks at him and, you know, he, he could just take him out in one bite. But he doesn't. He could. What a fitting picture. We are to be strengthened with all might according to the glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, Colossians 1.11 says. Wow. In other words, we're to do all this not saying simply, oh, I'm glad it's over. But that when we do it, we're to do it with joy. Knowing that Christ is our example and that he's the one that's doing it through us. We're to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. We're to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. There's the word. And teaching, Second Timothy 4.2. This divine attribute that is communicable and we are able to exercise as well as the other two virtues are a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, agape love in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. One fruit, agape, and the rest are there as manifestations of them. Virtues. Now the fourth, the phrase here, bearing with, deals with the outcome and the efficiency of the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us towards people. The word bearing with means to hold oneself erect and firm, sustaining and enduring with one another. This is what's called a participle present with the middle voice indicating the person as the participant with the Holy Spirit continuously. So I yield to it. I'm involved. God brings it about, but I am part of it. As we stated earlier, the three virtues are the source or essentials for the ultimate goal, bearing with one another in love, agape. The bearing with one another is the climax of the process with all lowliness, gentleness, and long-suffering. And the word love, agape, refers reinforces divine enabling available to the believer yielding to God. So there is no forcefulness from God's part. But there's a willingness from the human side. This love is distinct from the word phileo, the emotional compatible love due to common likeness or personalities. You know, we get along. You know, you meet somebody and, you know, you have the same likes, the same kind of, you know, um, desires and this and that. And you hit it off. You're friends. It's an emotional love, a compatible love, a fondness. But somewhere along the line, if you don't agree, then you may have a drift. And often good emotional fond friendships are broken up with some kind of rift about something that just they couldn't meet eye to eye with. 
This is all distinct from the word eros, the sexual love that's based simply on the physical. Now, both of these love, emotional and sexual, they're both legitimate. God created them in the context of marriage. But they're not what holds you together as husband and wife. Because when you're not a Christian, and even if you're a Christian, if you're carnal and you're living like the world, then these two loves are always abused and misused and manipulated. Because they center on self more than others. Because they, they cater to our flesh. They, they cater to our own um, satisfaction. They cater to our own appeal. And uh, they're easily manipulating. They're very destructive. This love is also distinct from the word storge, which means family love, family affection. When a husband loves his children, uh, wife, her children, the children towards the parents, the children towards the children, there's a family love. It's distinct from that one. And those are the four loves that we see in the New Testament. This love is God's love for others, it's a divine love. That which he um, defines for us in John 3.16, the gospel of the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's the best definition. He gave him uh, to die in our place. This is God's love, different from ours. This is exactly what Paul prayed for them, if you remember, in verse 17 through 19 of chapter 3. That they be rooted and grounded in agape, love of God, um, living out its full potential by being filled with the fullness of God. For agape love never fails. He just got through praying for them, remember? And unto him was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. That's how he finishes the first division of the uh, wealth of the believer in the love of God. Now it's the walk of the believer by the love of God. Okay, I'm sorry, by the love of God is the first three, and in the love of God is the, the second part, the practical. So we, we walk in the love of God. That's how we do this. If we're in love with God, then we're going to respond because we love God. When you love somebody, you want to please them. When you love somebody, you, you, you're there. You, you love being around them. You, you love doing things for them. You, you, you want to do what's, what's harmonious with that relationship. Once again, the example, illustration of the branches, they can't bear fruit apart from the vine, Jesus said in John 15. You see, you can't miss this. I mean, we can't do none of this without him. Any more than you can, um, you know, um, plug your holes into a drawer and think you're going to get water out of it. You've got to plug it to a water line. The water is not coming from the hose, it's just going through the hose. The water is coming from the water line. And so God may use you and I and do things in us and through us, but it's not of us, it's only through us and for us. It's my posture before God and man that 
that of lowliness and humility that's important. The power of the Holy Spirit under control of my life, my sin nature, being an instrument of being steadfast love towards Him and others. The attitude to the believer is to be that of Christ, a servant. The ultimate example of all humility, all gentleness, with long-suffering, with us in love. Listen to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He says, uh, let the mind, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself, emptied himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every other name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue may should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Though the epistle of Philippians is called the epistle of joy, the joy was not of the Philippians. The joy was of Paul. The Philippians had a problem. They weren't servants. And that's why he's talking to them. <laughs> they were having problems. The two ladies couldn't get along, and there's other problems as he studied the epistle. The example of the believer is not the pastor. Not a person's husband or a person's wife or their children or other people. It's Jesus. The ultimate. And yet how often people say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian because, you know, my pastor or my friend or my wife or my husband. Would they, did, did they die for you? It holds no water. Listen to Peter. He says, for what credit is it if you, when you are beaten for your falls, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Second Peter 2, 20 and 21. He's the ultimate example. The command to obey is accompanied with ability to obey, as we've said. We have been forgiven of all our sins and been made new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17. What a glorious verse. What a powerful verse. We have been given a new divine nature to be able to escape the corruption of the world in Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. What used to destroy us, what used to bind us, has no power over us anymore unless we yield to it. We have the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the mind of Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. I has not seen, or has not heard, neither has entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God, but the spiritual man judges all things because he has the mind of Christ. 
We all know how long-suffering God was to us as sinners and how long-suffering He is with us as saints. And therefore, He is our greatest example how we are to be towards others. Now, this does not imply permissiveness. This does not imply that you wink at somebody's sin if you know they're in sin. We confront one another because we love one another. Faith for the wounds of a friend, they see for the kisses of the enemy. But when confrontation comes and there's repentance, there's to be forgiveness and restoration. That is what my Bible tells me. In rare occasions, though, there may be some where a person has committed such a thing that there cannot be restoration, and that happens at times. But the majority of the time, restoration is possible. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul says, I'm a good example of a type of person God can save. I'm the lowest of lowest, so therefore people can be have hope as they look at me. <laughs> wow. The process of yielding to our new nature is the second basis for the believer's unity. In the spirit. Thirdly, is the product of striving to live in the spirit. Look at verse 3. The Apostle Paul has, for all practical purposes, described the formula of the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace in verse 2. The virtues of lowliness, gentleness, and long-suffering are all the work of the Spirit brought in and through the believer. The believer is a mere vessel, but he or she must yield. The believer can refuse to yield to the Spirit. The love of the Father is great. The love of the Son is great. The love that the Spirit pours out is great. The love of the Spirit is called the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. The believer is not the source of that love. The believer is only the recipient and the channel of that love. So notice the Apostle Paul therefore declared the constant need to make sure the believer does not hinder, listen carefully, the unity that the Spirit brings about and has made in the body of the believers. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The responsibility of each believer towards the unity of the Spirit deals again first with our attitude. Notice the word endeavoring deals with our attitude towards the work of God in our midst. The word endeavoring means to give diligence, strive earnestly, or to make haste. This takes place because you understand something. It affects your attitude. The word is a participle, a second, and it's present active, durative, denoting 
constant action. Literally, being diligent. We understand we are to make a purposeful pursuit towards unity. The context is Jew and Gentile in Christ. This is the great unity that God has done. Jew and Gentile one. All other differences are to be put aside. Wow. Notice that the believers never called to create unity. But rather to not hinder it. You have never created any unity in the church or between believers. You and I have only hindered the unity. (laughs) The Spirit of God brings the unity. We hinder it. Unity is the process and product of the power of the Spirit of God. The responsibility of each believer towards the unity of the Spirit then deals with our actions. Our diligence is towards keeping the unity of the Spirit. The word keep there means to keep by guarding, by watchful care, not obstructing or hindering. The believers to do all that he or she can to not disrupt or destroy the unity of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer or the church. There's a lot of carnal people. And they always think they know better. And they call themselves Christians, and they may be so, but they are like just Tasmanian devils. They just create trouble galore wherever they go. The only thing that hinders the spirit is the flesh of man. The flesh is the believer's sinful nature. It's ever-present. We can yield to it. The flesh is trusting in the abilities of man rather than the spirit. Somehow we think that we can do a better job on whatever it may be. So we take it and we run with it. The flesh is motivated by pride, contrary to the humility and gentleness and long-suffering and love of the Spirit. The flesh listens to Satan and the world and self rather than the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit always brings about the bond of peace. Notice that. The word bond simply means that which binds together. The word is used for the binding of ligaments figuratively in the body of the church in Colossians 2.19. The binding work of the Spirit that had been done was between Jew and Gentile. Bound in Christ. An incredible work at this particular time. Unheard of. Insulting to the Jew. Unacceptable. Wow. The word peace, irene, means that which was previously broken but now joined together again. Get the name Irene from it. (laughs) 
The bond of peace parallels the bearing one another in love. Bearing one another in love brings about peace. That's the work of the Spirit. The hostility between Jew and Gentile had been removed. We saw that in Ephesians 2.5. The middle wall of partition. Gone. All those differences. All that hatred. In Christ. Not outside of Christ. In Christ. James tells us that many say they have faith, but they have no works. While one's works will reveal their, their faith. John puts it a different way. He says, when word and deed become one, that becomes truth. And so it's always in the doing because you are being a Christian. Not doing to be a Christian. <laughs> You do because you are a Christian. Let me give you some of the due diligence every believer must do to not disrupt and hinder the unity of the Spirit. Stay in the Word, prayer, and be part of a church growing spiritually and not forsaking the gathering of the saints of some is, according to Hebrews 10.25. I don't know if you're aware, but we are in the midst of apostasy in the church There is such a great apostasy that is going on by people who have walked with God for years. Pastors, elders, marriages, young adults, teens. The emergent church is a great part of that. The emergent church is a parallel to the um, progressive liberals of the world, but only in the church. But they still want to call themselves Christians. It's the church of Laodicea. The trunk is ecumenical. Let's just love one another and not make any difference in doctrine. Many tributaries. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill thus the flesh. Galatians 5.16 says that's another good thing we can do. So we don't disrupt the spirit. Husband and wives, parents and children, children and parents. Remember the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God, casting down every imagination and thought to the captivity of obedience of Christ in Second Corinthians ten three through five. That has to be practiced every day. The minute you get up, there he is, there you are, bad combination. Putting on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. All of it. Don't run. No armor in the back. Your husband and wife, get back to back. It's better to fight with each other against Satan than to fight each other because of Satan. It's a choice. Bearing with one another is difficult at times because it calls for the crucifying of our flesh. But it's necessary practice and the right thing to do. Humbling ourselves to not disrupt the unity of spirit. Some, some people are really irritating, even the Lord. 
There's some difficult people in Christ. I mean, just because you're Christian, you're not just sweet and everything else, right? Some people, they just don't conform to Christ and they just want attention or whatever it may be. And they can drive you crazy. Sometimes there's personality clashes. Got to work through all those things. Got to ask God for wisdom. But there should never be any disunity due to nationality or race or former lifestyles if you're a Christian. There's neither Jew, Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, Galatians 3.28 says. We want to be one in doctrine, and there's some doctrines that we are very strongly uh, attached to, and we want to hold on to them, and some people don't agree with us, and we don't expect them to fellowship with us. There are brothers and sisters. Go find a church that you agree with. Let God use you, and I'll see you in heaven. No big deal. Colossians three fourteen and 15 says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Wow. The product of striving to live in the Spirit is the third basis for the believer's unity in the Spirit. So we have looked at the call of the believer to unity, consisting of these three things. The practice of being one with the new birth is the first basis of the believer's unity in the Spirit. The process of yielding to our new nature is the second basis for the believer's unity in the Spirit. And the product of striving to live in the Spirit is the third basis for the believer's unity in the Spirit. We're just to stay out of the Spirit's way. Not to try to do the work of the Spirit, not to hinder the Spirit, not to destroy the work that the Spirit has done. Just obey the Spirit of God. Yield to what He's doing and reap the benefits of that. It's a great, great thing to walk with the Lord and to walk with people in unity. God's love, God's peace. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your goodness. We pray, Lord, you would continue to just build us up and instruct us, Lord. We thank you for your long-suffering, your kindness. We pray tonight for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, you would speak to their hearts and, Lord, they would call on your name. And, Lord, you would save them. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. The grace of God is the only thing that can forgive us. It's called repentance. You may be sitting here, maybe you're over the internet. If you believe Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins, then you can call upon him. 
This is your prayer to him, and he'll forgive you and give to eternal life right now. Father, I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.